That's fine. All right, well, if you've got a Bible, just grab that and turn in it to Acts chapter 1. Um, great to see all of you here today, especially if you're a visitor with us. A special welcome to you. It's great to have you here with us today. So, yeah, if you start turning there to Acts chapter 1. Last week was Easter. I don't know whether it feels like a long time ago to you or a short time ago, but it was only just last Sunday that was Resurrection Sunday, and we were celebrating Easter together. And the passage that we were looking at last week was Matthew chapter 28. And we heard from Neil about how Jesus died on the cross for us, that he was buried, but that when they went to the tomb, they found that the tomb was empty. And the angel said to them, didn't he? He's not here. He has risen. Last week, we were celebrating life. We were celebrating the life of Jesus, his indestructible life, that he rose to life again. And we were also celebrating the new life of Tony as well, as we celebrated his baptism. And we celebrated what God has done in him in giving him new life. And Neil called us. He called us to come. Come to a living hope. Come to this living Jesus. A hope that goes on into eternity. And then go. In the same way that the women went from the tomb with the good news that Jesus was alive. We are to go and share the good news. And then finally to worship. To worship because of what God has done for us. So what we're going to do this week is, as it says on the screen, we're going to look at the ascension of Jesus. So we're looking at what comes next. That Jesus appeared to many people after his resurrection. And he explained to them about what he had done in his life, death and resurrection. He spent 40 days, actually, with his people before he went with his disciples to the top of a mountain in Galilee... And he was lifted up into heaven. He ascended physically into heaven until he went out of sight. So last week, looking at the resurrection, that was really the peak of Jesus' earthly ministry. And then this week, looking at the ascension, this is the end of his earthly ministry and the start of his heavenly ministry. Well, what I want us to understand today is that Jesus' ascension is not just a historical event, something to put a note in a history book, something that happened in the distant past in his ancient history. I want us to see today that Jesus' ascension means power for the church today. So let's find out how by looking at Acts chapter 1. So the book of Acts is written by Luke. And that might sound familiar because there's a book in the Bible called Luke, which is a gospel account. It's an account of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. So this is like the sequel, Luke's sequel to his his gospel. So let's read together here. Acts chapter 1, starting at the beginning. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit 
to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So here we have what he was doing in those 40 days, that he presented himself, that Jesus could have risen from the dead and gone straight to heaven. But it's really important that he didn't. Instead, he revealed himself, he appeared to his people as a proof that he had risen again. Because I think it's quite easy for us to think, oh, we're these days modern human beings and we have understanding of how things work, that these days we don't believe things like fairy tales, whereas, you know, back then they believed things like that because they didn't know as much. But you see, that kind of historical superiority, thinking that we're <coughs> smarter, is just not really the case. Yeah, yes, we have a lot more kind of knowledge now, but the people back then were just as smart as we are now, and they knew how things work. They knew that someone who dies does not normally come back to life. They know that. And actually, when Jesus appeared to the disciples first, Thomas wasn't with them. And he said, I don't believe you. I can't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I can't believe it unless I see for myself, unless I feel the holes in his hands for myself. And so Jesus appears again and says to Thomas, here I am. Feel the holes in my hands. Feel the hole in my side where I was stabbed with the spear. That Jesus showed himself and proved that he had risen from the dead. And in fact, there's an interesting detail in there where Jesus sits with them and eats a grilled fish. And you just think, that's a bit odd of a detail to just put in there. But you see, Jesus was showing that he was really alive again and that he was physically present. You know, sitting down to eat a meal is about the most natural thing you can do as a person. He wasn't some sort of vision or a ghost or a spirit. He was physical and real and he really rose from the dead. And in those 40 days, we also hear that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. That what he was doing was opening up the scriptures And showing his people how the promises of God, everything spoken through the prophets, everything that was written in scripture was fulfilled by him. That he is the promised Messiah. That he is the Christ, the serpent crusher. If you remember all the way back to Genesis 3, that that's the very first promise of one who's going to come, who's going to crush the serpent's head, and Jesus was showing them, it's me. One example of what he was doing was on the road to Emmaus. There were a couple of his followers who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus appeared with them. And it says that he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, it's quite a long walk to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and so this is a long time that he has to expand all of how the scriptures are pointing to him. And this really is the best Bible study that's ever taken place in all of history because Jesus is just expanding everything and showing what the meaning of it is, pointing to him. And then it also says that he ascended after he had given 
commands. So the other thing he did was to give commands. And we know what those commands are. Last week, we were in Matthew 28, and Neil was talking to us about the first part of the chapter of the women going to the tomb. So I'm going to read for us from the end of Matthew 28. And I don't think you need to turn there, because these are some very well-known verses. So Jesus commands us this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But these verses, we know them as the Great Commission. If you look there in the Bible, there's a little title that's been put in to help guide us through, and it says the Great Commission. But commission is not really a word that we use that much in daily language. So let's just have a think about what that is. What is a commission? Well, quite simply, we could just break it down and say it's a co-mission. It's a mission that we do together. It's a kind of sending out, a together sending. The other thing that comes with a commission is a giving of authority. So, for example, military officers of a certain rank are called commissioned officers. I don't know if you've seen the barracks down on Egbeth Road. There's two doors at the front. I don't know if any of you spotted this detail before. One door says men and NCOs. Those are non-commissioned officers. That's like a sergeant and corporal and then the soldiers themselves. And the other door says commissioned officers. So these commissioned officers are officers of a high rank who have authority and leadership over the soldiers beneath them. So a commission is a giving of authority. And the authority that Jesus gave to his people is a giving of his own authority We read that at the start of those verses. And the authority is to make disciples and to baptise them. Last week, we saw Tony baptised. And Neil and Elizabeth were down in the water and baptised him in the name of the Father, Son and Spirit. And Tony was brought in to be a member of us, a member of our church. And Neil and Elizabeth have the authority to do this because they are commissioned by Jesus. But only in the sense that we are all, as believers, commissioned by Jesus to make disciples and to baptise them. That now Tony himself is a part of that commission. That he himself could one day be standing down in that water, along with an elder, baptising someone else into the same promise that he's a part of that commission. So baptism is one part, and making disciples is the other. I think also a word that we don't really use in everyday language. A disciple is someone who follows someone else, who learns from them, who seeks to emulate them. It's something like an apprentice or a student wanting to learn the ways that they should go. And discipleship is not something that can happen spending two hours once a week in this room. 
That's not what discipleship means. That we are to disciple in a way to teach people to observe all that he commanded. That's what Jesus asked us. That's an all of life type of thing. Where discipleship means walking together through life's ups and downs. And pointing each other towards Jesus throughout all of those. So now Jesus said at the end of the Great Commission that I am with you always. But Jesus is about to go. So how exactly does this work? That Jesus will be with us always, but he's about to go. So to answer this, let's turn to John chapter 16. That's just going to be a few pages back in your Bibles. What number? Uh, If someone's got one of the church Bibles, shout out a number. 902, potentially. Yeah. So John chapter 16, and I'm going to start reading from verse 5. And this is Jesus speaking. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, I think this is making it maybe even more confusing. But now Jesus is saying that it's for our good that he's going away. So there's this together mission that we're supposed to be on. And Jesus said, I'll be with you always. But now he says, actually, I'm going. And that's good for you. But this is where we are going to learn about the power for the church that Jesus has in mind. Let's look down again to verse 7. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That Jesus has to ascend to the Father in order to be granted the authority to send the Holy Spirit. And having the Holy Spirit is better than having Jesus on the earth. Maybe that seems like something really strange to say, but this is what Jesus said. And I've got five reasons for us today of why it's better for us to have the Holy Spirit rather than having Jesus physically. Firstly, Jesus was fully man and fully God. And that means that Jesus was limited to the place where his two feet were. That he was, in every sense, a human being. And we know that he lived his whole life in the area of the Middle East. That he never made it to Britain. He never made it to South Africa. He never made it over to the Americas, despite what Mormons might try and tell you. I promise you he didn't make it over to the Americas. And when he was teaching as well with crowds of people, sometimes there were thousands of people and microphones weren't invented yet. I sometimes think, well, how on earth do people at the back of the crowd even hear what he was saying? But yeah, his, his reach was limited to how far his voice could go. There's a scene in one of the old Monty Python movies, if any of you remember that, where there's a Jesus-like figure in the background and the main characters are like, what? what's he saying? I can't hear him back here. And I think there's actually a lot of truth to that. That's probably how it was with crowds that big. 
But you see, Jesus was limited to one place. But the Holy Spirit is not limited to one place at a time. There are now millions of Christians all around the world, maybe on every continent. I was trying to think about this. It depends if any of the scientists in Antarctica are Christians. (laughs) But potentially on every continent of the world, there are Christians. And the Holy Spirit is with them all. Also, the Spirit is physically closer than Jesus could be. If Jesus was in the room right now, then the closest you could get to him would be to stand next to him, or maybe even to embrace him. But he's still next to you. Whereas the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells within a believer. We're told that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is closer than Jesus could ever be. So having the Spirit in you is better than having Jesus next to you. Number two, the Holy Spirit unites the believer to Jesus. Also, having Jesus in the room with you wouldn't make you united with Jesus. And now, union with Christ is a theological topic. And it's a big one, so I don't have time to go into all the details of it, the mechanics and the implications and everything, but it is a glorious one. And I think if you want more details, talk to Johnny after the service, because he loves the union of Christ, union with Christ. But let me put it in these kind of, um, this kind of context. That this kind of union is like a marriage union. So the day before Julie and I got married, we were in the church hall, and we were putting up the bunting, putting the flowers out, arranging the seats. And when we left that church building, we left as people who were engaged, and we had a relationship that was close, but we were not yet united in marriage. Whereas the next day, when we had stood at the front of the church and said vows to one another, and been joined together before God, That time when we went down the aisle and left that church building, we left united as husband and wife. And from that moment, the relationship between the two of us was changed forever. That then we were going to share a home together, share our future together, share our lives together, share our bank account. That our relationship was changed in the union that we had. And so it's that sort of connection deep union with Jesus and that connection comes through the Holy Spirit. Number three, the Spirit guides into all truth. If you look down again to John 16 and this time from verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and he teaches truth. And what Jesus is primarily talking about here is the way that he is going to equip his people with all that they need through the writing of scripture. He's talking about the word of God. 
that Jesus, working through the Spirit, is going to uniquely gift the disciples, people who witness Jesus, the early believers, to write down the things declared to them by the Spirit who has heard them from Jesus. And so for us, the Word of God is foundational truth. So that's where we go to find truth. We also know the Word lifts Jesus up and glorifies him, which is the fulfilment of the end of those verses there. But even though there's that unique gifting in order to establish scripture for us, it is the same spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit who guides and leads and teaches who is in every Christian today. And so as we grow in our understanding and our relationship with Jesus, it's the spirit who guides and teaches us in truth. And the Spirit has made it possible for us to have a book that is 2,000 years old and yet to open it and to find truths that transform our lives today. And it's been the same for every generation, that the Spirit has made these truths alive and real and true for each generation that passes. Number four, the Spirit makes believers more like Jesus. This is transformation. And I don't think I need to go into too much detail here because we've recently had sermon series that have been all about this. And we had Galatians, where we heard about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I think I got them all, maybe not in the right order. (laughs) But we saw how it's the Spirit that grows us in those fruits. And Colossians, which we just finished, where we heard about putting off the old self, the old self with the old desires and sin, and putting on the new self, the ways of righteousness, to be more like Jesus. And we heard how it's the Spirit who empowers that transformation. We heard from Tony last week that he didn't have the power to change until he came to Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit working in power who is doing that in him. Now let's finally look at John 16 at verses 8 to 11. And let's just see what this complete process of transformation is like. And when he comes, that is the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So firstly, the Spirit convicts of sin. The Spirit opens spiritual eyes to see the magnitude of our sin and to deeply know that it separates us from a holy God to know our brokenness, and to be able to have the faith. The Spirit himself gives faith to be able to turn from sin to God. Then next, the Spirit convicts of righteousness, because we are to follow Jesus. But where is he now? He's gone to heaven. So how are we going to see him to follow him? But it's the Spirit that leads us. 
in ways of righteousness by which we can know Jesus as a friend who's closer than a brother, as the way that we can go through life and know how to walk like Jesus in each circumstance because the Spirit teaches us. And then finally, the Spirit convicts of judgment. Judgment of the ruler of this world, it says. The ruler of this world is Satan. And he is defeated. He has no power left. His kingdom is a defeated kingdom. And when spiritual eyes are opened, you will see that there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. A kingdom of death and a kingdom of life. A kingdom that is defeated and a kingdom that is victorious. And while the ruler of this world still prowls around for now, he has actually lost the war already. And so he is counting down the days, knowing that there will be a time that he will be utterly destroyed. So his kingdom is going to be wiped out, eradicated. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he taught amazing truth. People were amazed with the authority he taught with. But actually, only the Spirit can bring change, transformation. Number five, the Spirit equips believers for mission. That's presence. You might have noticed there's some truth, transformation, presence. That's our mission statement as Liberty Church. So the Spirit equips believers for mission. So Jesus sends out his disciples on the Great Commission... But he's not going to send them on his own. Remember, he said, I will be with you. So let's turn back to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to land. It's just going to be a few pages forward back to where you were. And we're going to pick it back up in verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said... You heard from me, for John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, these are angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there we have it in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what we see is that the disciples had the Holy Spirit come on them in power 
And suddenly things just go wild. If you've read Acts and if you look ahead into Acts 2 and what is going to happen there. They suddenly had the ability to communicate supernaturally in different languages. And there are supernatural gifts from the Spirit that empower God's people to bear witness about Jesus. And I can't go into all the details now about all the ways that the Spirit equips the church, but just know that the Spirit pours out supernatural power on God's people and it will make us look very different to the world around us. The other thing that happened is the disciples, the 11 of them, they were hiding They were hiding in an upstairs room with the door locked. And they were terrified, thinking that something had gone terribly wrong with Jesus' death and not knowing what to do. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they then suddenly go out. They go out in boldness, risking themselves when there's threat of persecution there. But they go out and they boldly proclaim and preach Jesus. And we see the group of God's people as the Holy Spirit comes on them in power. They get defined by these things. We see in them a love of God's word, a love for each other, a love for prayer and a love for worship. That's what we see right at the end of Acts 2, some of my favourite verses of the Bible, because it gives us a picture of what the church transformed by the power of the Spirit is like. And the church goes on like that throughout Acts. And healthy churches throughout the centuries have gone on like that, marked and defined by the same things. And amongst all this, God uses them powerfully. The church goes from 11 to over 3,000 in one day. And then from history, we see that the church just explodes until today there are more people on the planet who claim to follow Jesus than anyone else. And with looking at the ascension, I haven't had time today, although I wish I did, to go into all the implications of it. So what I've done today is to focus on what the ascension means for us today, now in the sending of the Holy Spirit. But let me just also briefly mention some other things. That also the implication for us now is that Jesus is on the throne in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. It means that he's an advocate. It means that he's for us and he loves us. And it means that we can approach the throne of heaven knowing that Jesus is there as our mediator. And there's also implications, as well as for now, there are implications for eternity. Firstly, because Jesus physically rose from the dead and physically ascended to heaven. So for us being united with him, it means we can be confident that we also will ascend like him physically to a physical place for eternity. And Jesus also said that he is going to prepare a place for us. That he's going to prepare rooms in the Father's house for us. So we can be confident that there will be a place forever with him as a member of the household of God.
And none of these things could have happened if Jesus didn't ascend. But today I focus where Jesus did, because the last thing he told them before he went was, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here is the power for the mission. That Jesus is with us by his spirit on the co-mission. So what I want us to do is to take this knowledge of what the spirit is doing for us. And to go in power to actually make disciples. We should disciple one another. To tell of what Jesus has been doing for us. To point each other towards Jesus. To love each other like Jesus has loved us in a way that's totally different from the world, a way that's totally sacrificial, to pray and to worship. And as we do these things, to invite others in to join us, to walk alongside us as we walk towards Christ. So there is power for the mission because of the ascension of Christ, because we have the Holy Spirit within us, The Spirit unites us with Christ. The Spirit leads us to truth. The Spirit transforms us. The Spirit equips and empowers us. So for all these reasons, go. Go on the mission. And hopefully you see that the ascension of Jesus, not just to be another event filed away in the history books, but Christ's ascension empowers the church for mission today. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you. We glorify you. We worship you. Because you came and died for us. And you rose in victory. You are right now in heaven, sat at the right hand of the Father. And you are declared king over all. We say that there is all praise and all glory and all honour to you. And thank you for not leaving us on this mission alone, but that it is a co-mission, that you are with us right now in our midst, and you are with us as we live out this new life and faith that you have given us. And thank you that we can come to you at any time in prayer, because you live forever to make intercession for us. Thank you for sending us the helper, the Holy Spirit, and pouring out upon us love and power. Holy Spirit, thank you for uniting us to Jesus so that we could even go to the point of saying we are right now seated in the heavenly places with him. Thank you, Spirit, for teaching us in truth leading us in ways of righteousness as you transform us to live and to love more like Jesus. And thank you that you work in us to give us the desire to press on in the mission as well as empowering the mission. Father, we ask that you would use us for your glory, that we would live out and we would walk in the power that you have placed within us, And that we would boldly love your word, love one another, and proclaim Jesus to those you've placed in our lives. 
Father, would this all be just from an outpouring of your love and of your spirit so that it's like second nature, like breathing to us. We know, Lord, that in our strength we would fail, but in your strength we can be more than conquerors. So send us out now for your kingdom and your glory in Christ's name by whom we can come into the throne room and ask these things. Amen.